This episode has been brought to you by Sake Man, a group of sake superheroes bringing sake to the world. And welcome to Foment About It on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, I'm Maria Zed, and I'm your co-host through this weekly journey of all things fermented here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can listen to us live every Thursday at 7 or on your favorite podcast app, Spotify, etc. Uh, so I am here in Charlotte, North Carolina at Free Range Brewing with Jason Alexander, co-founder and brewer Correct. here. And uh, it's a privilege for me to be here. And it's super exciting what you guys are doing. So talk about, uh, when did you guys open? We opened in 2015. Uh, we came about this from all different ways. Uh, myself, from a, being a graphic designer, uh, laid off in the recession and talked to my brother who was in um, resort management in Key West, Florida, into uh, making a life change with me. Uh, and we opened up what became Free Range Brewing, a small family brewery with a major focus on local agriculture. Cool. And had you guys been brewing before? Did you homebrew, or how did you kind of find your way to, to making beer? I had just started homebrewing, uh, but the, I, I think the bigger driving force was uh, that I was buying beer for a beer bar, and so my passion for craft beer uh, was kind of born and then just went crazy with uh, the ability to... <clears throat> find what I loved about food in a beverage. Uh, craft quality, um, all kinds of massive flavors, uh, unique, delicate uh, aromatics. Y you kind of had the full range in beer that I was really getting into with food uh, and then gardening uh, played a, a big role in how we source. Um, and uh, after six long years of planning, uh, we decided that we would open finally. Um, the brewers that we had chosen to develop our plan with had since kind of moved on because we took so long. Uh, and we, we found ourselves left in a position of uh, needing to figure out on our own. So at that point, I had been brewing for five and a half, six years uh, and had just enough, I think, uh, ability to, you know, make the crazy uh, commitment to, to be in the brewer here. So. Uh, I think it worked out okay. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where I'm lucky enough to be able to um, learn as I go, uh, and we, we kind of set ourselves up for the ability to to have that uh, inherent risk of, you know, on-the-job training uh, be built into a plan because we kept it small. Uh, and so whenever we take a risk, which is pretty often, uh, we're doing it in a way that is manageable. So Cool. Yeah. So we are sitting in the middle of your tasting room. Um, the brewery is in front of the tasting room, kind of to the side. It's open. I'll post some photos on the Foment About It Instagram um, when the show goes up. Um, you guys have a three-and-a-half-barrel system. Correct. And yep. you're, you're going into seven-barrel fermenters. You have a bunch of Grundies. You have a bunch of barrels in the back room, some mini fooders in the, by the front door. Correct. So talk a little bit about, I guess, well... Okay, so we actually have a beer in front of us. Tell, let's start with this beer. So we're drinking Su uh, Perfectly Persnickety Susie. Uh, Susie is, a, is the, the namesake that we have given to our um, continuing brewing of grisettes. Uh, we call them a Carolina grisette, Carolina being because uh, so much of the malt is locally sourced malt. 
uh, Grisette because we love low alcohol beers that are big in flavor but easy on your, your body and your palate. Uh, and then uh, <clears throat> this one, uh, perfectly for Snickety Susie. Uh, two years ago, we bought some persimmons, uh, a lot of them, 200 pounds of them, and didn't quite know what to do with them. So we had a friend who had a restaurant and was gracious enough to let us freeze them and store them in her walk-in freezer. Uh, a couple, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, I remembered <laughs> that we had stored persimmons in her walk-in, uh, and luckily they were still there in, in usable form. And uh, we got even luckier that the, the, they had frozen fast enough and been preserved well enough that it actually made them more manageable to process um, and broke down all kinds of cell walls and, and made the proteins more accessible. Uh, we still had a really nice, bright persimmon profile, that rich kind of mellow honey fig flavor that you get from persimmons uh, after the frost. And so the additional frost just made it that easier, much more easier to get to it. Uh, and so we brewed this beer with it. Uh, and then we augmented the persimmons with uh, hibiscus roselle flowers, uh, which we've, we use pretty often. Uh, they're really nice. Uh, they, they, when they first grow, they look like okra. Uh, but then the flower is this really dark red crimson and so you get a little flavor, I mean, a little color contribution from them, um, a good bit of tannins and tea-like uh, flavor profile. Um, so we dry those and then make a tea at the end and then put those in post-fermentation with the beer. Cool. And those are also lo locally sourced? They are, yeah. Our, cool. our farmer buddy grows them for us, Jamie awesome. Swafford. Yep. So does he pick them and then you guys get them fresh, dry them yourselves? Correct. Okay. He brings them to us fresh. Awesome. Uh, we then decide if we want to use them fresh, which they're they're kind of like rhubarb when they're fresh, mm -hmm. uh, really tart and bright, uh, really crisp. Uh, the petals are very fleshy. Uh, and then if we can't use them all then or decide we're not ready to use them, then we'll dry them. And then uh, just as an added precaution, we'll freeze them after we dry them to extend the shelf life on them. So, cool. Yeah. Well, this is delicious. Thank you. Talk about Carolina malt. How many, you know, how many maltsters are here? What what kind of um, grains are you guys seeing? Okay, uh, so we, we get really excited about malt uh, and the fact that we can work with the folks that are malting it and and through them work with the farmers that are growing it uh, is a cycle and a connection that just really I, I wanna, like invigorates and excites us and motivates us to brew uh, to brew more with with all these wonderful grains. Uh, so we use. Six row barley, two row barley, uh, seashore rye, a bruisey rye. Uh, these are heirloom ryes that are, are grown um, throughout the state, really. Um, and then uh, we're now able to get uh, oats uh, as, of, as of this year. Uh, malty corn was a, a really big passion project for us that we were pushing really hard from. Corn grows extremely well in North Carolina, and nobody was malting it um there was only i think one brewery or one malt house in the entire country for a long time or two they were malting it grouse and colorado malting mm -hmm. um and so we pushed really hard to get these guys that we work with who are riverbend malt house epiphany malt house and carolina malt house our north carolina malt houses uh to do some you know take a chance and experiment with us on this uh, and they did, and we now have two different malted corn options. We have a popping corn malted corn and a field corn malted corn, both with extremely different profiles uh, that, you know, very versatile. Um, and so <clears throat> we've got those. We also have uh, raw wheat, malted wheat, uh, or multiple types of wheat, uh, buckwheat. Um, let's see, there's more um, spelt. Uh, and then... 
But so we, we, we basically have more than more than we could ever really uh, ask for. Uh, and they're always w- excited and willing to do uh, custom maltings for us. Um, uh, we really couldn't ask for a better partnership with the malt houses we work with. It, it makes uh, all, all the crazy beers that we li- like to make that much more exciting to, to kind of conceptualize. So, cool. yeah. I would like to hear more about using malted corn and specifically these two varieties. I actually haven't had very much... Uh, practice with uh-huh. or experience with with corn personally um, and I think probably a lot of other people haven't either so I'd love to hear more about that so one of our first beers that we created was a, a cream ale uh, inspired by spotted cow at New Glarus that we just think is one of the most beautiful beers in the whole wide world about how easy drinking it is uh, how much flavor and um, uh, you know they're they're brewing pretty sure with local malt mm-hmm. up there mm-hmm. um, and, and they've got a strong agricultural concept to their brand no matter what mm-hmm. But so <clears throat> we, we started pushing with these corns. The first one that was became available uh, or as a, a potential use was the popping corn uh, being malted. Uh, so the malt house, that was Epiphany Malt House. They malted it. And they're near Durham, right? They are in Durham, yeah. correct. Uh, it's, uh, all the specs came out good. Uh, we got the corn in house and we tried to run it to the mill and it just fit, it sounded like it was our mill was going to explode. Uh, so uh, extremely dense and really hard corn. Uh, and so we reached out to a kind of a mentor buddy of ours who is a brewer near here at Falta Flora, mm-hmm. uh, Todd Boera, and he had, he had had similar issues using corn and had found a really nice uh, hammer mill that was affordable and approachable for this small setup. Uh, and so we got a hammer, hammer mill, hammer milled this malt, and, um, and, and began to use it, integrate it into the beers that we wanted to use corn in. The challenge with this malt was that it was, uh, it was hard to tell. It had a really bold aromatic to it that was almost like a, um, like a biscuit malt, mm-hmm. uh, heavy Munich uh, aromatic. Uh, and so we were a little concerned it was a little too much for the profile that we had been planning on malted corn to be with. And so, and it did turn out to be a very bold, um, that heavy, heavily kilned um, aromatics and flavor. So we were getting a little bit less efficiency than we wanted. Uh, and so, it, but this is all part of the what makes it fun uh, is figuring out how to use these ingredients and how to showcase them in a way that works for. Uh, the, the popping corn made sense because that was what they could that our malt house could source uh, in the time frame we wanted, and also what they could you know fit fit the everybody's budget. Uh, so there's so many layers of, of what works when you're deciding what to even try out. Um, and so we decided, okay, here's how this here's here's where this malt fits into our program. Uh, and so it wasn't quite what we wanted for uh, more of a base malt type aspect of uh, a more lighter, grassier, mellow corn, almost like a Pilsner-type fill-in. Uh, and so Riverbend sh- shows up and says, hey, by the way, remember what you were asking about malted corn? Well, we've got one in test phases now. Uh, and that was a field corn. Uh, the field corn turns out to malt and become much more like uh, kids' cereal puffed marshmallow-type texture. So it's really puffed and crispy. Uh, so it mills a lot easier. Um, and you can mill that with a regular, your standard mill? Correct. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, but it, it comes through with a much more bold cereal flavor, cereal grain flavor. Um, so whereas we had started off using flake corn, your cheap breeze stuff, that's mm-hmm. uh, extremely neutral, uh, this was given us similar efficiencies, but I'm presenting with a much more flavor. Uh, and so that, to me, that's a good thing. You, you just have to figure out, okay, 
restraint and then dial it back and we've uh, I think we have our first batch of our cream ale coming out into this week with the most up-to-date recipe kind of augmentations that is going to get where we've been working to get it for since we opened basically so yeah cool yeah so what is a hammer mill hammer mill is um used a lot in feed situations for um for livestock farming uh it's instead of rollers that crush the whatever product you put into it in kind of a compression type mold uh this takes a screen and then what i can best say looks like a a metal paddle that flaps around inside the screen and forces whatever you've put in there through the screen and so the screen determines the size of the finished product so you you can adjust the screen it's, okay. it's a lot more it's easier to figure out once you look at it um so you switch out you make the screen you have different with. screens then correct okay. yeah and that's what a miller would make flour with okay, okay. Uh, you can go a lot smaller a lot easier with it so okay cool yeah what are your some of your other favorite uh local grains that you've that you've been using here uh I, I, ever since i had the seashore rye from uh you were looking at the uh, Red Island peas over there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that's from Geechee Boy Mill in Edisto, South Carolina. Uh, he is, which is an island, if I remember correct. correct. Yeah, okay. he is a guru at bringing back heirloom grains with a vengeance. Uh, and so, Seashore Rye was one of the ones that he brought back uh, into regular production, and it has got the most wonderful bread flavor to it—just fresh, fresh cooked bread, not uh, not too sweet, not all the way to that crust flavor, uh, but just mellow bread, not too spicy like some rye can get. Uh, and it, it's the protein content gives you that body. If you want the extra body, it's beautiful, beautiful grain. And what's your? What have you been using that in? Uh, we use that in a lot of stuff. Saisons. Um, our um, we've tried it in IPAs. Um, it, it's very versatile malt. Cool. Uh, so yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about some of the other local ingredients that you guys use here. So we've been fortunate enough to get connected with farmers that are willing to share what they do uh, and be open to. Um, to changing the way they do things uh, and, and hopes and, and, and endeavors to, you know, uh, try out new flavors and stuff with us. And so uh, whenever we have a beer or a, um, a, an ingredient that maybe we can't source it, like a, a specific hop we're looking for for a, a flavor profile, then we start looking at what other options do we have. Where else can I find uh, piney flavors? Where else can I find citrusy flavors? Where else can I find floral flavors and, and aromatics to boot? Uh, and so um, we'll have folks that work with us on uh, growing specific stuff for the brewing process. And then we have um, a farmer or two that are not only farmers but really uh, experienced foragers. Uh, and so they'll help us kind of search out these more unique, more unconventional or less conventional ingredients. Uh, so all kinds of evergreen tips. Uh, so eastern cedar, which is called juniper also around here. Okay. Um, spruce tips, hemlock tips, uh, berries and flowers from all of these. Uh, pine flowers have been one of the coolest ingredients that we've worked with. So a pine flower is, is the kind of wormy-looking sponge-type thing that grows at the... Um, grows in the springtime, which releases all the terrible pollen that everybody hates. Uh, if you harvest those before they dry and release the pollen, it's like bright tangerine. Uh, and so you get oils from it, which produce flavor and aroma, or hold it, flavors and aromatics. Um, and you get tons and tons of flavor, citrus flavor from it. Uh, they've been great. And they store well. You can freeze them if you need a holdover. Um, and then you can use the, the tips at the same time to just give you a different layer of that, of a very similar complementary flavor and aromatic. 
Um, Sumac has been one that's been really fun to work with. Uh, the local versions that we most commonly work with are Staghorn and Smooth Sumac. Uh, the absorbic acid bloom that happens on the outside of the, the berries on it, the seed pods, uh, gives you a really bright citrusy tartness. Uh, it also stores well, and so basically uh, when that comes into season in the fall, uh, we will uh, acquire and harvest it absolutely as much as we can get our hands on and then use it throughout the year. We've got a couple of beers that are heavily rely on it, and then a couple of beers where we just kind of bring it in. Like we use it in a wit beer recently uh, to augment that, you know, instead of using dried citrus peel, we use that and the pine flowers to, to bring in that flavor profile. Um, service berries were a really uh, amazing ingredient we worked with last year, uh, kind of a cross between a plum and a blueberry uh, in a really small, compact form, uh, a good bit of tannins in them, so you have to manage that, but it can. It, it can create another um, desirable flavor component as well, depending on the beer. Um, corn silk has been a really fun ingredient to work with. Uh, it's kind of take all the essence of corn and uh, turn it into a floral form. So it gives you a lot more aromatics in a really light, delicate manner. So, Cool. Yeah. So hops, are you using any hops that are grown in North Carolina? No, we have okay. not. We, I didn't know. If, yeah. We have it on homebrewed test batch size stuff. I used to grow a good bit in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Cascades, Centennial, and uh, um, Willamette growing in the backyard. Uh, the Cascade being the best growing in this area and pretty much grew like kudzu. Um, but as far as uh, since we've been open with the brewery, we have not. So, okay. Yeah. Are there hop, any commercial hop farms in North Carolina yet? There are small hop farms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, none of them are doing anything beyond fresh hops yet. So it's mm-hmm. your limited um, mm-hmm. availability and time and when you can use them. Uh, but we've seen some pretty good product. There's people that are trying. So, cool. I mean, that's the, that's the right step. So. Yeah. Let's see. Let's talk about another beer that you guys have. Okay. Take a quick pause. Yeah, actually, let's take a quick break because it's break time. So we'll be right back with more from Jason at Free Range Brewing in Charlotte, North Carolina. This episode is brought to you by Sake Man. What is Sake Man? Sake Man are judo athletes wearing Lucha Libre inspired masks that act as sake heroes. This team of athletes moonlight as sake educational professionals spreading sake to the world. Learn more about their mission and their favorite sakes at saketotheworld.com. That's saketotheworld.com. All right, welcome back. Again, I'm here at Free Range Brewing in Charlotte, North Carolina with Jason Alexander of Free Range Brewing. Um, and tell us, tell me what you guys just poured. So beer number two is Jenny All Spruced Up. Uh, Jenny is our series of Saisons, uh, named after my other grandmother, uh, who was the little bit more bold, aggressive personality. Um, spicier, I guess. Uh, and so this is actually one of the more tame uh, flavor profiles of a Jenny that we've done. Uh, so uh, pretty much all Pilsner malt, a little bit of wheat, or I actually spelt for this one, I'm pretty sure. And then um, ginger, dried ginger stalks, uh, so the tops, okay. uh, which give you mm, a little ginger aromatic, a little bit of hay, like fresh hay type flavor going on, uh, and work great in a, in a tea format. Uh, and they store really well also. And those are also grown here in North Carolina? Correct. Yeah, okay. there's a farm around that grows the, 
the most delicate, amazing ginger I've ever had in my whole life. Um, you don't have to peel it. You, you get it, and it's just fresh and juicy. Uh, it is beautiful ginger. And so this we're always trying to figure out how do we how are we more smart with these ingredients because some of them are can be expensive. Uh, anytime we can use more than just the uh, the planned part oh, this is delicious. makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then fresh spruce tips. Cool. Uh, going this, and then just a little hint of juniper, but more so to round out. Uh, juniper can give a little bit of a berry berry note to it, and so that was the idea with that. So. And you guys, you said you use juniper tips. Yes. Okay. Uh, cool. Juniper tips, uh, fresh, uh, and then uh, a lot of spruce tips. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, this is this is really lovely. I mean, I love the the uh, Susie as well. Thanks. But this is more. I don't know. Just, yeah. Uh, this we, we for a long time we were using um, a French saison yeast mm-hmm. for about. Uh, oh yeah, let's talk about our yeast. Saisons, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then decided that diastaticus, uh, the you know the kind of wild yeast anomaly that was making its way into a lot of uh, yeast, um, um, a, a lot more yeast than people were thinking it was making its appearance in. Uh, we were ending up with beers that were a little bit too uncontrollably. Dr- controllably dry mm-hmm. and too, too full in attenuation uh, so we've recently switched to using a uh, the Norwegian farmhouse uh, quick yeast from Omega so, perhaps? Uh, no this one's from the yeast bay. Oh from so, the yeast bay yep. awesome we also use Nor- the Norwegian yep for, but we get ours from Omega but yeah how, yeah. what's your experience with the Norwegian? Uh, I mean absolutely the most fun yeast I've ever worked with um, we are starting to use them in all of our IPAs uh, there's so much flexibility and dynamic range of, of uh, just what that yeast can produce, whether it's flavor, aromatics, attenuation. I mean, it's got so much potential. Uh, and to have one product that you can pull so much out of, you know, is uh, really valuable in a small brewery when you're, you're pretty limited with space and uh, cellar room and whatnot and yeast harvest storage and whatnot. And so anytime I can take a, a yeast harvest that came off my Saison and, and use it for a, a more neutral, clean, American-style ale, that, that's huge. So, yeah. And you, you're generally exerting pressure on the yeast via, I guess, pitch rate and temperature in order to change Correct. kind of the aromas and flavors? Yeah, Are those we, the two main things you're doing? Right. We okay. found that temperature is the biggest control, okay. like the, the, the biggest element of what is going to steer that yeast in one direction or the other. Um, so, But we're still, it's got... There seems to be so much um, variety in that yeast strain. We're just mm-hmm. now starting to branch out from the first one and try others. Cool. Um, so. And which exciting. one you guys? Which one have you guys been using from East Bay? The uh, they only had one that was a commercial, like regular mm-hmm. one. That's the Sigmund Vosses. Okay. Uh, yep. The Vos. Yep. Yep. And then uh, Omega, I think, has a couple. We have three. Uh, White Labs is getting ready to release one. So. It's nice to have all these new options. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, well, talk about beer in Charlotte, or you know, the kind of the brewery scene. You guys have a pretty significant brewing scene for the population per capita. We do. It's Way fresh. higher than New York City. <laughs> I, do we? Per capita, yes. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, North Carolina as a whole is is booming with uh, good beer. Um, we. Uh, We've seen it increase, like double and triple in numbers. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, nice meeting you too. Um, so when we opened a short almost four years ago now, there were, I want to say, 80 breweries in the state, and now we're maybe over 300 or somewhere in that realm, um, maybe more. Uh, it's, it's insane. Uh, and so 
not only are your options growing, the people that you get to you know work with are growing, the potential for for peer collaboration, whether it's making a beer or just learning from someone, is growing at an unreal rate that I, I would have never expected in a in an industry. Uh, Charlotte just seems like it doesn't have a limit right now as far as breweries coming into it. Uh, we're already in approaching 30 in the greater Charlotte region, and I really feel like I find out about a new one each week. Um, so I could see us having 100 breweries in the greater Charlotte region in less than, you know, the time we've been open from now, so in the next three to four years. Cool. Uh, the city doesn't show any signs of slowing down its population growth, and, you know, I think people won't products that are, are high quality and are thoughtful uh, and brewery is a really effective way to, to achieve that so yeah what about, yeah talk about your customers so obviously you you know you guys are using a lot of local ingredients you're doing probably I think a lo- at least from my perspective a lot of the public has not probably heard of a grisette I'm going to guess until maybe yep. they had yours yep. um, so what yeah how's kind of been the reception what kind of feedback do you hear what I'd love to hear more about you know the Charlotte beer drinker from from your perspective so the, the Charlotte beer drinker is not the the um, not what's the right way to say this. Um, I think we see a greater challenge in most breweries in Charlotte in connecting with the Charlotte population of beer drinkers. Um, we, we don't do a lot of trend following mm-hmm. for hazy beers, mm-hmm. uh, big beers. Uh, you know everything about what we do we did so that we could be flexible and do what we want to do when we want to do it hopefully we do it in a way that is approachable and high quality enough that folks are interested in it but it's definitely not the big booms that some of the other breweries are seeing Uh, when we opened the brewery uh, we were growing a family ourselves and so so much of our brewery space was built around accommodating for that because we we anticipated what it would take to run and grow a business uh, and knew that we wanted our children to be a part of that and so we wanted to make that possible for them and other folks while at the same time creating a space that if you don't want to be around kids there's space for that too Mm -hmm. Um, and so the environmental experience of our brewery was a big um, you know I, I guess goal of how do we make this the best that we can for as as, as large of an audience as possible while maintaining stuff that we're not flexible on. Um, and so, you know, we knew that uh, we needed a, a pretty dynamic space. Um, as far as the type of customers that we attract, uh, I think we attract a little bit of an older demographic than most breweries in Charlotte. Uh, we're, we have a, a very, um, I think a lot of our beers fit with, folks that would consider themselves foodies mm-hmm. uh, we do a lot of food events here in general because cool. uh, Charlotte has some amazing chefs and restaurants that we're excited to, to get connected with and so naturally we want to do as much as we can with them uh, and so a lot of the stuff that we program here that is our events are focused around food in Charlotte uh, which you know connects us with folks that we think are you know perfectly dialed in for the, the weird beers we make uh, and interested in you know taking a chance on something new uh, but even when we make weird beers, we try to do it in a way that has a connection point for something traditional. So, right. yeah. Cool. Talk about this third beer that, that, that I have so, in front of me. So you asked me to, to pour some uh, botanically-inspired beers. <laughs> uh, this one is, is a tangent from a botanically-inspired beer. The botanical element, I, I would dare, uh, I guess, say is maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. So That's to awesome. me, it makes sense. It comes from a tree. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's an amazing uh, sugar adjunct, uh, which, it, you know, if handled right, can give you a lot of fermentation potential, but can also um, contribute some, some wonderful flavors and aromas also. Uh, and so uh, one of our former staff members had an uncle that made his own maple syrup in Ohio. So this is one of our local ingredients. This is not exactly local. Okay, that's what I was going to, yeah. Because it's family-oriented from mm-hmm. our extended family, it makes it local to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of break the rules in that manner. Uh, so Uncle Bob is who brewed this this or who uh, made this maple syrup. Cool. He would, from the, the amount of production he does on a homebrew level for a maple syrup is amazing. Uh, hundreds of gallons per year of maple syrup, and it is really good maple syrup. And so we buy this in kegs at a time, uh, basically a drum that looks like a keg, uh, and then uh, use it in beer. Uh, so this beer is a, a big boozy brown ale, uh, inspired by another Bob in our life who was uh, has a lot of, of beers named after him, who was Bob the brewery builder, my father-in-law, made the space beautiful, uh, did all the woodworking in here uh, with our help. Uh, but contributed so much to our development and our aesthetic and the experience here. And so we do a lot of beer kind of named after him. Um, but this is a big, big boozy brown ale uh, with maple syrup added in post or towards the end of fermentation so that we make sure that we chew up all the sweetness but leave the flavor and smell. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job on this batch. Um, we Did definitely I see have, this is 10.5%? It is, yeah, yeah and this is dialed back yeah, from you would never the guess previous it. versions. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. Uh, so I want to go back, let's go back to the brewery. So you guys are doing a lot of stuff in Grundy's and also Barrel. I'd like to hear more about your Grundy program and your Barrel program, uh, kind so, of, you know, what you guys have going on. So the Grundy's are just straight-up multi-use tanks for us. Uh, they're easy to clean, easy to manage. Uh, they we should fit. preface this if you don't. First, actually... Explain what a Grundy is better than I can for people that might not know. So Grundy's first made their um, made their place in the American brewing scene in the first beer revolution post um, prohibition. I guess that was the uh, the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so think Sierra Nevada, uh, birthplace times or whatnot. Uh, so Grundy's were English serving tanks that were imported into the United States. They were cheap. Uh, very economical to work with and basically indestructible if you handle them properly. Um, and so they were almost always seven barrels. Sometimes you see smaller ones, uh, but usually a seven barrel tank. Um, so they've got a pretty good top manway on them. They're light enough because they're single wall that if we put fruit in them and we can't figure out how to get it out the drain, we just turn them on their side and scoop it out. <laughs> um, and then they are, we think they're pretty, pretty beautiful tanks as far as the design and the way they look. Uh, you know, a nice element of nostalgia in a, a world full of, you know, a lot of shiny stainless. Um, and so we use them a lot of times nowadays as a secondary conditioning vessel and then um, a bottling vessel to where we'll dose with um, our priming sugar and then bottle for bottle conditioning. Cool. Um, our barrel program is mostly mixed culture uh, uh, with a, a, a mixed assortment of some previously used spirit barrels by us but mostly wine barrels and then um, our different I guess our ranges of beer range from anything from a blonde sour to a dark sour Um, and with our longest term barrels back there being three three years now uh, beer hanging out in there and and still behaving properly Um, and then are you guys uh, are you inoculating these barrels 
We do. So okay. we, we've done anything from um, bottle dregs grown up with a, a profile that we're a profile that we're excited about from another brewery mm -hmm. uh, to many of those combined, uh, and then also some gifts from uh, brewers that are. Uh, much further along the nuts that have gifted us barrels with with their mixed culture inherently living in the the wood um and then our clean barrels uh that we barrel age are usually either a like a big imperial stout uh but one thing that we've started doing that we really like are cocktail inspired beers to where we find that we'll do a a lot of times it's a gruit so beer no hops uh using a lot of different um botanicals to try to match a flavor profile of um, uh, a friend's of ours who is a mixologist uh, and match up a, a drink they make. Uh, the last one we did was a Manhattan inspired brewet that lived in whiskey barrels for a little while. It was, had a lot of um, a lot of botanicals trying to match the profile of vermouth and then uh, it turned out to be a, a really nice kind of uh, approximation of a, a Manhattan that was much lower ABV and um, just a different take on it. So, yeah. Cool. And then you said you meant you were mentioned earlier that you have these mini fooders. Yep. So you said there were 110 right. gallons. Yep, they're uh, Armagnac uh, punchins cool. that we purchased from Old Hickory. Uh, that in, and Old Hickory is another Hickory's brewery. It's a brewery in Hickory, North okay. Carolina. Mm -hmm. Been around for a long time. Um, excuse me. Uh, these were used in their uh, Imperial Stout program. And so we were a little concerned with the profile of an Imperial Stout basically chewing up all the Armagnac flavor in the barrel before we got it and Armagnac has been the most persistent flavor we've ever dealt with in the barrel. <laughs> uh, and we were three three runs through them now and still get presenting Armagnac flavor after their massive Imperial Stout lived in them. So uh, we, we fitted them with hardware so it's easy to get beer in and out of them, a drain mm -hmm. on the bottom, a uh, port on the top and then a sample port on the side of, on, in the staves. So. And those are also mixed mixed culture? They are. Now they've turned into uh, kind of a base Brett beer cool. system. Yep. Awesome. Then I guess last thing, I would like to go back to North Carolina. So do you find that a lot of other breweries are using local ingredients like you guys, local malts? There's more of a, it sounds like there's more of a demand. I think so. Do you so. find you kind of have like a, a network of other breweries like yourselves that are experimenting with, you know, local grains and kind of trade information? Um, yes. Uh, some doing it heavily. Well, a few doing it heavily like okay. we are. Mm -hmm. uh, but most will, I think they'll, they find the best way for them to experiment is through a seasonal. Cool. Um more breweries than not in North Carolina are still production breweries yep. that are making their their living off of you know package package beer mm -hmm. in out in a market whether it's the state or the region. Mm -hmm. um, so I understand, and, and thusly, a lot of them are reluctant to make big changes in their malt sourcing right. uh, because, and, and that's one of the reasons why we think local malt is beautiful because it is dynamic and it's always changing but that's agriculture yeah. um if if you're not if your agriculture is not changing then you're doing things to it that you shouldn't be doing to it uh with with over fertilizing it and dealing with you know pesticides herbs, all that stuff that is going to create the consistency you need but dilute the overall product um and so we treat it like we do any fresh produce uh that you know, what is the profile of this malt now? Um, and how do we best use it? So, cool. Yeah. yeah. What's kind of your big, some of your biggest learnings, I guess, over using these local ingredients and learning how to, to get the best use out of them? Like, um, or what, what kind of advice would you give to other people? So we also have a lot of 
local malt in and hops in, in New York State, and we have a farm brewing license. So there are a lot of breweries in New York State, including us, that use uh, malt, and it, and it is tricky sometimes. Yep. Um, so what what kind of advice would you give brewers that are breweries that haven't don't have as much experience as you and are really interested in utilizing their local ingredients? I think with uh, using local malt, the the biggest thing to know is that it's, it needs to be part of your story and it needs to be part of your education for your consumer, whether that consumer is a, a bar manager or somebody sitting in your bar, let them know why this can change uh, and that change is not a bad thing. Um, it's on you to make sure that that change is, uh, you know, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, like, maybe our biggest mishap, uh, we, we thought that we could overcome our uh, limitations of a small brewery in dealing with mixed cultures by being the best cleaners of a brewery ever and the best managers of chemicals and whatnot, the mixed cultures are going to win no matter what. Um, and so we got away with three whole years of mixed culture throughout our clean system without a problem or without you know a disturbance in the expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we brew a series of sourdough beers that are 100% primary fermentation with a sourdough poolish, which is a, a big wet sourdough culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going into every tank that we, we do. And then, you know, throughout, eventually that resistant, beautiful sourdough culture uh, that was very aggressive to keep going for the 200 years that it's been alive and ongoing from the baker that we use it, uh, found its way elsewhere. Uh, and so that was a big game changer for us that, you know, we have to change. And all these old school brewers are saying you're crazy to be doing this in your tiny little brewery and expecting not to pop up. Uh, they were right. Uh, so, you know, just recognizing that, A, the folks that have been doing it for a long time, they, they usually know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, and you know, we understood the risks that we were taking. I don't think we understood the implications of how to, how to like, fully deal with it. Um, and so we, it took us a while to recover from it and costly changes to our program. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, it was worth it for us to do the experimentation that was meaningful to growing our brand um but we should have planned better from the beginning of, of how to manage it but you know we didn't know better so right. yep. yep i think making sure that you learned from those mis- those uh, i don't want to say mistakes but unexpected uh developments and changes in, in your product learn from it and you know make sure you change and make it a positive change so cool yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with Thanks. me and uh, you. sharing your beers. Um, and if you, if people would like to find out more, you guys have a website, freerangebrewing.com. Correct, freerangebrewing.com. And then you're also on Instagram. Freerangebrew. Cool. Yep. Facebook. Yep. And Twitter. Yep. Nope. No Twitter. <laughs> no Twitter. So Facebook and Instagram. So thanks again. And if you guys are in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, I would highly encourage you to visit Free Range. So cheers. Thank you. Cheers. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.